Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Today is our last day uh, studying uh, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelations. And I wanted uh, to take an opportunity here at the beginning just to recap uh, what we have seen uh, in these seven letters to these seven churches. Because while we are not exactly like any of the churches that Jesus has written to, we are somewhat like all of the churches that Jesus has written to, both as a church, but also as individual Christians. So I quickly want to walk through this. I have a graphic here by a, game, by, by a guy named Mark Berry. And so I want to walk through these churches and uh, we'll kind of stereotype them or label them, which isn't always a good thing, but I think is helpful uh, in this scenario. So the Apostle Paul is writing from the island of Patmos. He has a vision from the Lord Jesus to write these letters to these churches. And so the first letter is to Ephesus and then the Smyrna, and then it goes around this circle, which is the postal route. And so Jesus' first letter is to the church of Ephesus, uh, which is the legalistic church. It's the church that uh, follows all the rules, is orthodox in their beliefs, does not put up with false teaching, but has lost its love for Jesus and lost itself uh, for other believers in the church. Then we get to the church of Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. Uh, this, they were faithful, but they also suffered greatly. And Jesus encourages them to be faithful until death, until they receive the crown of life. Then he writes to the church in Pergamum, which is the permissive church. Uh, they held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny their faith, but they were theologically loose. Uh, they didn't want to call sin, sin. They didn't want to call anything sin. And so they allowed false doctrine and false practice into their church. Then there was a church in Thyatira, which was the divided church. Uh, there was a woman teaching in that congregation. They call her Jezebel. That probably wasn't her actual name. But she was teaching a theology that allowed for sexual promiscuity. Uh, many in the church followed her teaching. But many in the church also said this, church, this teaching is not consistent with God's word. And they were faithful. And so they were a divided church. Then there is a letter to the church in Sardis, which is the dying mega church. Uh, it was a church that was growing in numbers, but shrinking in faithfulness to God. They gathered a lot of people, but did not obey God's word. Then there, last week we studied uh, the church in Philadelphia, which is the tiny faithful church. Wasn't growing in numbers, wasn't growing in influence or power, but Jesus gives them nothing but praise and encouragement and tells them to hold on because he is on the way. Finally, uh, today, we get to the seventh church, and it is the church that most preachers would say most resembles the American church. It is the church in Laodicea. It is the lukewarm church. And so if you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. 
Uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22 today. If you don't have a Bible, you will need one. Uh, feel free to get up and go grab a red one from the back. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear what you have to teach us as a church, but also as individuals. God, pray that you will give us soft hearts, not defensive hearts, but hearts that are willing to hear your loving commands. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have walked through the seven letters to the seven churches, we have said that these are Jesus's spiritual check-ins on these letters. And so Jesus doesn't abandon these churches, but writes to these churches out of love for these churches. And he does so to praise them for what they are doing well, to reveal the problems that they have in the church, to prescribe the remedy for those promises, for those problems, but also to give a promise to those who repent and seek to be faithful to the Lord, a, a promise of glory in heaven. And what is interesting in these letters is that Jesus identifies himself differently in each letter. He, he expresses different divine attributes that are particularly important for that church to understand. We do the same thing. For example, if I write a letter to my kids, I will end it, love dad, because that's my relationship with them. That's what they need to know about me and how we relate together. If I write an email to one of you here in the church, I will probably sign it Pastor Dan, because that's our relationship. If I write an email to my, my wife, I will sign it, love your hunky hubby, right? Because that's who I am and uh, who cut his hair too short, but, but that's who I am in subliminal advertising, sublim, sublim, sub, you know what I'm saying, that, that advertising, uh, trying to convince her that I am her hunky husband. But, but this is, this is but you, we identify ourselves with certain people in certain ways to communicate the relationship we have with them. And in each case, these seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus highlights certain of his divine attributes that are important for what he is about to say to this church. 
And we see that here in this passage as well. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The Amen means, the Amen literally means truly or, or the truth. And he reaffirms that he is the truth uh, by saying the faithful and true witness. And so, so what does it mean for someone to be a witness? It means someone observes something and then communicates it accurately to someone else. And so what is Jesus a true witness of? Well, Jesus is a true witness primarily of two things. First and foremost, Jesus is a true witness of who God is because Jesus reigned in heaven. Uh, he is one person of the Trinity. And so he communicates to us who God is. But the second thing that Jesus is a faithful witness of is, is who we are, um, who you and I are, what the condition of our soul is. You see, Jesus' perception of us is much truer than our own perception of us. In Psalm 139, David said, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And so David and Jesus are affirming this glorious but also terrifying reality that Jesus knows you better than you know you. Jesus knows you better than you know you. You think you know you, but you don't know you like Jesus knows you. Jesus knows the good in you better than you know the good in you. And Jesus knows the evil in you better than you know the evil in you. Jesus knows all your thoughts, all your words, all your deeds, all your passions, all your loves, all your obsessions, all your fears, and all your failures. Jesus knows you better than you know you. And so Jesus continues with his self-identification, saying that he is the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean uh, that Jesus was a created being. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. But that Jesus was at the beginning of creation. Jesus created all things. Jesus sustains all things. Jesus is preeminent and Lord over all of creation. That's what this means here. And so as Jesus presents himself, what he is saying to them is that he knows all things and he is in control of all things. And Therefore, we must listen to all things and believe all things that he says, not only about God, but about us and about our own spiritual condition. And this is so important because what Jesus is about to tell the church of Laodicea is difficult. What he's about to tell them about their own condition is something they could easily dismiss. And so what does Jesus say to the church in Laodicea? Well, first, Jesus praises for the church in Laodicea. Again, if you see in the outline, I have a verse zero. Uh, this is the second time I've ever done this in my preaching career. But Jesus has no praise for the church in Laodicea, just like he had no praise for the church in Sardis. Jesus only comes with a rebuke, with a warning. And so Jesus probably has not heard about the five to one rule. Do you, do you know the five to one rule? The five to one rule is, is, is you must give five praises to someone before you give one piece of uh, critical criticism to or constructive criticism to them. And so, 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 so family doctors have studied this, psychologists, uh, marriage counselors have studied this, and they say, you know, if you want a healthy family, if you want a healthy business, if you want healthy parenting, you must give five words of encouragement for every one piece of constructive criticism that you give to, 
to a person. And generally, this is a good rule of thumb. But Jesus gives no praises for the church in Laodicea, only criticisms. And here's the reason why. It's because this lukewarm church is in crisis. Think of it this way. Uh, think about it maybe if you're driving here today and you got in a bad accident. Thankful that that didn't happen. But imagine this happened. And an ambulance come and they, they take you to the hospital. And you get there and the doctor shows up and he says, you have really lovely hair. I love the color of your eyes. You have such a nice tan. Oh, look how you painted your toenails. Did I get to five yet? By the way, your heart stopped beating, right? That's not how it works because it is a crisis situation. And so Jesus has no praise for this church because they are in crisis. They are on the brink of catastrophe. Now, what is the problem in the church of Laodicea? Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or literally vomit you out of my mouth. So five miles away from the city of Laodicea, there were and there still are hot springs. And people would go to these hot springs, uh, you know, for the same reason we would go in a hot tub today, right, to, to cure the ailments of our body. Uh, it was also good for hot drinking water to warm your body on a cold day. And so what the people of Laodicea did is they actually built these, these aqueducts um, all the way from these hot springs all the way to Laodicea. This is actually from, ruins from Laodicea. And they would pipe in this hot water. Well, you can imagine on a very cold day when they're piping in this hot water that the water goes from hot to lukewarm. And when it goes to lukewarm, it's no longer useful to fill the, the big public bath or the pool there. And it's, it's no longer useful to drink, to, to warm yourself up. It's no longer useful. In the same way, uh, Laodicea was also right positioned below some mountains. And so they would bring cold water down from the mountains. But on a hot day, when that cold, cold water would come down the mountain, by the time it got to the city... Uh, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And so it was ineffective to refresh them, to refresh their souls, or sorry, to refresh their body. Um, and so that's why Jesus is, is communicating this, because this is language they would understand, that lukewarm water for them coming from these two sources is unuseful for the very thing that it was supposed to be for. And so Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. Now, it's interesting as you read uh, what different commentators say about this church and, and who are the lukewarm churchmen and churchwomen. Some people think the lukewarm are, are non-Christians. Uh, some think the lukewarm are Christians. Uh, but I think if in the case of almost every church, it's a combination of the two. And so I, I put together this graphic uh, to try to explain how I understand it. Uh, they didn't teach us graphics in seminary, so be nice to me. But, but if you see here, there is a continuum from cold to hot, right? So there's cold here, hot here, and there's lukewarm in the middle. And then on the top here, you will see there are those that are unsaved, that are cold and lukewarm. And then there are those that are saved, that are lukewarm or hot. And so if you go from light, left to right here, you, you see there are unsaved, cold people. These are people who would say, I'm not a Christian. I do not feel, follow Jesus. I don't think Jesus is Lord. He's not my Savior. I'm not a Christian, right? They know they're not a Christian. We know they're not a Christian. Everybody knows they're not a Christian. They're not, they're not fooling anybody. They're not fooling themselves. 
But then you get to the second part, which is a lukewarm non-Christian. And this is a person who thinks that they are a Christian, but are not a Christian. They probably go to church, maybe occasionally, maybe regularly, but they go begrudgingly. Uh, they are not fervent about prayer or fervent about uh, studying the scriptures. Uh, they are not born again. There are millions of lukewarm Christians, sorry, lukewarm non-Christians in America. And I know because for the first 18 years of my life, that was me. Uh, I went to church regularly. I did catechism class. I did all the things you're supposed to do. But I really had no affection for Christ at all. I, I didn't love him. I didn't care. For, I, I, I was just doing everything I was supposed to do, hoping that I would be okay with God. But I had no affection for Christ. I was a lukewarm non-Christian. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that a lukewarm non-Christian right here is in greater danger than a cold non-Christian. And the reason is, is because a lukewarm non-Christian has deceived themselves. They think they're Christians, but they're not. And so they are in greater danger. This person, at least, the cold non-Christian, is uh, admitting uh, that they don't have a relationship with God, admitting that they are not following Christ as their Savior. Think of it like this. Imagine if you had two people of the same age, same health, and they both get cancer. One of the people knows that they have cancer, this fatal condition, but the other person has no idea that they have cancer. They think they are healthy. Which of these people are in greater danger? It is a person who thinks they are healthy, but actually have a fatal illness. And the reason why they're in greater danger is because they're going to do nothing about it. You know, it's interesting. As a pastor, one of the things I have the privilege of doing is helping people become Christians. But in doing this, especially in Green Bay, so much of the time, I first have to convince people that they're not Christians. These are people who say, you know, I'm a Christian because I was born in America, or I'm a Christian because I go to church, or any of those things. My dad loves to say, you know, well, being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car, right? And so I have to convince people, listen, you're, you're not a Christian. If you're looking to yourself, you're not a Christian. And it's not until they understand that they are not a Christian that they can then repent and trust in Christ for their salvation, the third person described here is a saved, lukewarm person. This is the person who is born again, the person who trusts in Christ for their salvation, but the truth of the gospel has made little impact on their life. Maybe they come to church, they pray around the dinner table, they're generally moral people, but they're passionless about prayer, passionless about sharing the love of Christ with others, passionless about digging into God's word, and they're doing nothing to stir their affections. The final person, and this is a little bit weird to say, is the saved hot person. So I'm not saying it's like a really attractive Christian. That's not what I mean. Uh, the saved hot person is a person that is zealous for Christ, zealous for his word, zealous for his church, zealous to, to, to share his good news with other people. These are the four people groups I think Jesus is talking about in this passage. But again, he is focusing in on the lukewarm church. I think he's talking about lukewarm, uh, Christian or non-Christian. And he is coming to them to rebuke them. And so the question is, why is it that this lukewarmness uh, makes Jesus' stomach sick? Why does it literally make him want to puke? Well, 
let me give you this illustration. It's not a perfect illustration, but I think it will help. So imagine a woman has a baby, okay? And, and this woman has this baby, and she sees the beauty of this baby, the glory of this baby, but she also knows the demands of a baby, right? You have to feed this baby, you have to change this baby, you have to take care of this baby. If the woman comes to that point, she has one of two logical options, okay? One option is to say, I'm going to give this baby up for adoption because I'm not up for this. There's a lot of demand here. This child is beautiful and precious. And so she makes a courageous decision to put this child up for the adoption. The, the other choice of this woman is to say, this child is beautiful uh, and it's going to change my entire life, but I'm going to take this child home and I'm going to reorient it, my day, my finances, my efforts, my energies, everything to take care of this beautiful and precious child that puts all of these demands on my life. Those are two rational decisions that someone can make when they see the beauty and the demands of having a baby. The irrational decision is to be lukewarm about this child to be indifferent towards this child, to take this child home, to lay this child on the bed, and then to leave this child and think nothing about this child. That makes us sick to our stomachs. That is, is why we have, we have services in our community because it is putrid to us that someone would neglect such a child. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, if you grasp the beauty and the glory of the gospel, the beauty and glory of God. And if you understand the demands that are put upon you because I am your Lord, I am not only Savior, but I am Lord over your life. If you, if you understand that intellectually, but you are lukewarm, then it makes me sick to my stomach. If you really understand my beauty and my demands I put upon you, you must either reject me or reorient your entire life around me. To be in the middle is intellectually foolish. And so this is what Jesus says makes him so sick to his stomach. It's that someone can hear the glory and beauty of Jesus and their life not change. Now, what is it that makes us lukewarm? You know, I, I say to you, like, as I look at that scale, like, I will confess to you that, that I go from hot to lukewarm, sometimes several times in a given day. <laughs> sometimes there are seasons of my life, and maybe you feel that as well. But what is it that makes us drift into lukewarmness, okay? And, and what we learn here, with the, what Jesus says, is what makes us lukewarm in our Christianity, listen closely to this, what makes us lukewarm in our Christianity is an overestimation of our spiritual condition. It's an overestimation of our spiritual condition. Look what he says here in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, that's not seeing, not perceiving, not being aware that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What makes a person lukewarm is that they equate their physical comfort with their spiritual comfort. You see, the, the city of Laodicea was a very prosperous city. It was the richest city in its region of Phrygia. And the reason why it was so rich is because of, of a lot of different factors. One is they had very fertile land, and so it's good for grazing these sheep who had this beautiful, shiny black fur. And so they were well known for it, and people would come from all over to buy clothes from there. Also, they were the home of a famous medical school where they, would, uh, where they produce an eye salve that was somehow relieving to folks. 
at that time. Uh, and because of how rich they were, they were also the center of the baking, ba- banking industry uh, in that region. And so they were kind of like Wall Street or, uh, uh, you know, what's the place in Switzerland? They were like the rich place, okay? They were the rich city. They were well off. Uh, one of the commentators mentions that one of the most striking things about the city that just shows how wealthy they were is that in AD 60, there was a great earthquake uh, that destroyed a lot of cities, and a lot of cities took help from Rome. Um, But he says this, it's Tacitus who writes this, he says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by strength of her own resources and with no help from us. That is the Roman Empire. See, the, the church of Laodicea, the city of Laodicea was a proud city. It was a powerful city. It was a prosperous city. And their self-reliance and self-confidence bled into their church and made them lukewarm. Here's what Jesus is reminding us of here, is that so often, not always, not always, but so often, affluency leads to apathy. Affluency leads to apathy. Affluent means you're well off, you have lots of money, you're comfortable. Apathy means that you lack enthusiasm or concern. Affluency, physical affluency, often leads to spiritual apathy. You know, in America, we, we are very proud of ourselves. We are self-made. Uh, we're maybe the richest country in the history of the world. Uh, and we are very affluent. Uh, some of us are more affluent than others. I don't know if you know this, but if you make more than $32,000 a year, uh, you are richer than 90% of the world. If you make more than 10,000 a year, you're richer than 50% of the world. 50% of the world makes less than $10,000 a year. And the danger of this, this is a great gift and blessing from God, but the danger of this is this material affluency can lead to spiritual apathy because we forget how spiritually needy we are. And that's probably why most preachers would say the church of Laodicea is the one that is most like the American church today. Because in America, we say, Americans say what what is said here in verse 17, we are rich, we have prospered, we need nothing. And so how do we get rid of this spiritual lukewarm apathy that comes from the the great financial wealth that we have had? Well, it's not by getting rid of your money. It's actually simply by having an accurate view of your own spiritual condition. Look what Jesus says. He says, realize that you are spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually wretched means that you are spiritually despicable apart from God. Spiritually pitiable means that you are miserable spiritually apart from God. Poor means that you are spiritually bankrupt. To be spiritually blind means that you cannot see the truth about God or about your own soul. To be spiritually naked means that your sinfulness and ugliness is laid bare before God. And so what Jesus says here, and this is so important, is that One way that we fight against this lukewarmness, maybe the most important way, is to understand the depravity of our spiritual condition. And so how would this make us more hot? Why would this make us more zealous for Christ? Well, think of it this way. If you are walking down the street, downtown Green Bay, and there is a $20 bill blowing down the sidewalk, who is gonna be more zealous to pursue that $20 bill? Someone who lives in a mansion or someone who doesn't have enough money to pay for food that day. 
is going to be the one that understands that they are impoverished and they need that money to get what they want. See, the needier the person, the more they will burn with a passion for that which will satisfy their need. Now, this is so important. Jesus does not, listen close, Jesus does not rebuke the church for being needy. It's actually the opposite. Jesus rebukes the church for not realizing how needy they are. All of us, without exception, are spiritually needy. All of us, without exception, are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked apart from Jesus. And so Jesus says the first step to coming out of this lukewarmness is to understand your own spiritual depravity. And then Jesus gives the prescription, the remedy for this. And and again, it starts with understanding how spiritually depraved we are. But then Jesus moves on to verse 18. And, And what we'll see here is verse 18 mirrors verse 17 and also mirrors the culture in Laodicea. I'll try to draw that out for you. So first in verse 17, we are told that we are spiritually poor. And then look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be Rich. Remember, Laodicea was a major banking epicenter. The Laodiceans knew what was good gold. They knew what refined gold was. It was gold that had burned off the impurities, where the impurities had been burned off by fire. Christ is offering to them spiritual riches with with purity, pure gold that is burned off often by persecution or suffering or obedience. And so the first thing he offers them is gold refined by fire. Secondly, he says, he goes on, uh, and remember he says you're spiritually wretched, uh, wretched and naked. Verse 18, Jesus says, and buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Remember Laodicea was was famous for the black shiny wool that they would get off of their sheep. And people would wear clothing made out of this black wool because it it was kind of like showing off how cool they were, how affluent they were. It'd be like, I don't know, wearing Gucci or whatever the cool kids wear today, right? Like they would wear that to show how rich they were. But Jesus here says, come to me and buy the white garments, the white robes of my righteousness, to cover up all of your filth, all of your sin, and all of your shame. You know, I love snow. Uh, one reason I love snow is because we have a dog. And, and the dog will go into the backyard and, and drop stuff in the backyard, if you know what I'm talking about. And it's not pretty, that stuff that's dropped back there. But when the snow comes, it covers up all of that ugliness. In the same way, when we lay naked before God, all of our sin is exposed. It is ugly. And yet he says, come and take on the robes of righteousness of Christ. Thirdly, we are told in verse 17 that we are spiritually blind like people groping around, searching for truth about who we are and who God is. And verse 18 continues and says, and buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Again, remember, Laodicea was a medical center famous for their eye salve. And here Jesus offers them a salve to allow the eyes of their heart to see the depravity of their own soul and the beauty of Christ. Now here's the question. If we are spiritually poor, why does Jesus tell us to come and buy? If we are spiritually bankrupt, why does he say, hey, come and purchase the riches of heaven from me? How can he say that? 
Well, if you look in Revelation 22, 17, we read this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God beckons us to come time and time again and purchase the riches of heaven for free. How could this be? When Trish and I lived in St. Louis, we uh, for a while attended this inner city church uh, that was, uh, the community was pretty poor there. And they had something there called the free store, which sounds really strange because a store uh, is usually trying to make a profit, right? They sell stuff, you buy stuff. But they had this free store. And the way that it works, if I remember correctly, is that they would find out how much families were in need and they would give them kind of this play money, this toy money that the church had made up. And so they would give them this play money according to their need, the size of their family, how much income they had. And then the people would come and they would purchase with this play money the stuff that they needed uh, to, to, to take care of them. And so, so what you found is that for the consumer, for these people, the items in this store were free. They're free for the consumer, but they were not free for the contributor. Those that contributed to this store had to purchase these things and give these things to this free store. Jesus is calling the church of Laodicea to come and buy the priceless riches of the righteousness of Christ and spiritual sight. And this purchase costs the consumer nothing, but it costs the contributor everything. You see, the currency at the redemption store is not coins, it's not dollar bills, it's not Bitcoin. The currency of the redemption store is blood. It's not my blood, not your blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the one who says, come and purchase the riches of heaven. In 1 Peter 1, we read, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so what is Jesus' prescription to lukewarm Christians and lukewarm non-Christians to remember your spiritual condition, your spiritual depravity, and then come and purchase with the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and the riches of heaven. Now, we may ask, why is Jesus so harsh towards this church? Why is he so blunt with them? Is it because he hates them or because he's impatient with them? But look at verse 19. And soak in this. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Why does Jesus convict us? Why does Jesus reprove us, rebuke us, admonish us? Why does he discipline us, chasten us, and instruct us? It's because he loves us. I remember several years ago, um, I took some of my kids to a camping trip with my softball team, and it was a fishing trip. 
And uh, while we were there, uh, my kids were so excited to play with the other kids from the softball players there. And so, so we would set up, I set up the pop-up camper and I would cook the food and I would clean up and I was happy to do so because the kids could go and play with their friends. But as, as it went on, I realized, hey, I'm doing a lot of this stuff. I'm doing almost all of it, right? Like now I know what it's like to be a mom. But, but, but so I was cooking, I was cleaning, I was putting things together and, and fixing it up. And so I was spending all my time at the camper doing these things. And so I, I lamented to one of my softball buddies to say, hey, I'm doing all this stuff and my kids are running around and having fun. And I still remember him saying to me so directly, he said, Dan, if your kids grow up to be lazy, that's your fault. And I was like, whoa, like that's a really direct statement, but it's also really true. If I love my children, I will seek to raise them and instruct them, correct them when, they're go- when, when they go off course. Now, to be honest with you, there's a lot of times, and my kids can testify this to this, that I do not discipline out of love. I discipline out of frustration or anger or selfishness. But Jesus always, always, always disciplines us out of love. If you're here today and you feel convicted about your own lukewarmness, take note that this is an indication of your Savior's love for you, whom by the Holy Spirit reproves and disciplines our soul. And so be zealous and repent of lukewarmness. Recognize your depravity and rejoice in the riches of Christ that he has for you. Finally, Jesus promises to the church in Laodicea. Look at verse 20 with me. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So often this verse is used uh, to, 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 to share the good news of Christ with the, the cold non-Christian, if you remember that on the chart earlier, to say, listen, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Open it up and let him in. And it's probably okay uh, in that instance. I don't want to disparage that. But, but remember the context here. The context of this passage is for the lukewarm people in the church, whether it be lukewarm non-Christians or lukewarm Christians. And the good news that is being communicated here is that Jesus is coming and he is knocking on the door of your heart because he has not given up on you, because he continues to pursue you, because he wants intimacy with you. And so he says, open up the door, let me in to come in and to eat with you. Now, Jesus isn't threatening to clear out your refrigerator or your pantry. To eat with someone was the most intimate form of fellowship you would have with a friend or with a family member. And so it's not like driving through, you know, the McDonald's uh, window, but, but it's like a supper club, right? It's, it's, to, it's to dine together, spend time together, to enjoy one another. And this is the promise of Christ, that if we open the door, if we repent of our depravity, cling to the riches of Christ, receive Jesus again and again, that he will be intimate with us. Jesus' promise continues in verse 21. He says, the one who conquers. This is a refrain to all seven churches. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That is to share in his triumph and his riches. And he says, as I also conquer, that's past tense, he conquered through his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven over Satan, sin, and death. He says, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so how do we conquer? Well, 
Christ tells us this in Revelation 12, 11, where he says, they have conquered him, that being Satan, by the blood of the lamb. That is the currency of redemption story. Remember, they've conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for their love, not their lives, even unto death. And so to all who conquer by the blood of Christ, this glorious promise and the new heavens and the new earth is that Satan will not rule the world, that sin will not rule the world, that corruption will not rule the world, that spiritual poverty will not rule the world, that lukewarmness will not rule the world, but that Christ will rule the world with justice and peace and joy and we will reign with him. You know, one of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World. But this song was not originally written for Christmas. It wasn't written about Christ's first coming. It was written about Christ's second coming. And in that song, it says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He rules the world with truth and grace. It makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Christian, how glorious is this? To rule and reign with Christ forever, with righteousness, in which we will forever be treasuring and investigating the wonders of his love for us in Christ. Let me end with this. Let me end this by focusing us on a specific word in this passage in verse 19. If you look in verse 19, Jesus says, those who I love, I reprove and discipline. And he says, so be zealous. What does it mean to be zealous? Well, let me give you a few quick illustrations and then uh, an explanation. Um, in 1900, Ernest Shackleton placed an ad in the London newspaper. Uh, Shackleton was an explorer who was headed for the South Pole, and he needed a crew to go with him. And so he placed this article in the newspaper, and this is what it said. He says, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. In response to this single ad, Ernest Shackleton got 500 applicants. And when you look at that, you wonder, what would make someone want to go to the South Pole even at the risk of their own life? It's if they have an earnestness that is greater than life itself. They're earnest to conquer the South Pole, earnest for fame, earnest for recognition. You know people who are earnest about different things. We're all earnest about different things, right? You know people who are very earnest about the Green Bay Packers. They wear Packer clothing everywhere they go. They have, you know, their Packer room or Packer basement. They talk about the Packers. They watch the Packers. Uh, and watching the game's not enough. They have to watch the highlights of the game that they just watched about the Packers. Some people would say, I'm pretty earnest about the Packers, and I probably am, right? You know, you know that you know when someone is earnest about a boy or a girl that they find attractive because they kind of rearrange their whole schedule, their, their heart changes a little bit, and, and they just center around this person because they're so earnest about this person. What is it like for a Christian to be earnest? Well, I want to read to you a quote from J.C. Ryle, and this has just so... Um, this quote has just hit me so hard this week. It's such a wonderful quote. And he's talking about Revelation chapter 3. And this is, this is what he says. He says, What says the Lord Jesus to the Laodicean church? 
Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zeal in Christianity is a desire which is not natural to men or women. It is a desire which the Spirit puts in their heart of every believer when they are converted to Christ. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a person, when it really reigns in a person, that it impels them to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny themselves anything, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend themselves and be spent, and even to die if only they can please God and honor Christ. And then hear this. I love this quote. He says, a zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. They only see one thing. They care for one thing. They live for one thing. They are swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. He goes on and says, whether they live or whether they die, whether they're healthy or whether they're sick, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they please men or whether they give offense, whether they are thought wise or whether they thought foolish, whether they are accused or whether they are praised, whether they get honor or whether they get shame. For all this, the zealous person cares nothing at all. And then he ends with this. They have a passion for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance the glory of God. Christian, are you tired of being lukewarm? Non-Christian, are you tired of being lukewarm. Jesus is standing at the door. He is knocking and he's calling for you to recognize your spiritual depravity, your spiritual neediness, and then to come and to buy from him the riches of heaven, the glory of heaven, the righteousness of Christ, to fellowship with him and to look forward to that day that is coming when we will reign Christ and all things will be made happy again and we will sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Christ calls us to be zealous for him, to be about one thing. And that's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we come confessing that we often drift into lukewarmness in our affections for you, God. And so, Lord, pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would stir us to be about one thing in our workplace, in our homes, in our play, in whatever we do. May we primarily be about one thing. May we primarily be about you. We need your help. Holy Spirit, we pray you work within us. Help us. Help us to be faithful to fan into flames the faith that you have given to us. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of this glorious truth that when we were not zealous for you, you were zealous for us. So zealous that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to bring us to yourself. And so God, we take of this meal humbled by your zeal for us and pray that you would grow our zeal for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.